0: You want to get out your sermon outline? Says hope for the dirty on it, and kind of a unique title. Welcome Andrew and Allison Mullins back. Oh, welcome home! All married now, happy, wonderful. It's been a month, so good. Good to see you. All sorts of folks back. A number of folks that uh, I haven't met and uh, would love to meet you after the service. That'd be great. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. So it is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So you go uh, open your Bibles in the middle, go right. If you get to Matthew, you've gone a little too far. It's right before Malachi where we were last week. I'm going to read chapter 3 of the book of Zechariah. It's a little different book in that, and uh, we'll talk about this, but it's a vision. And so you're hearing Zechariah's vision. It's not a historical narrative. Uh, It's not a teaching passage. This is actually a vision that God gives to Zechariah. So let's listen carefully as it is God's word. Zechariah 3 verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing with him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it. We need to be reminded of what Advent prepares us for. We need to look forward to the coming of the King. We need to not be so down on ourselves, so unaccepting of ourselves, that it erodes our hope. We need to trust that you are enough, and that your acceptance of us, and more importantly, your cleansing of us, is enough. Enable us this day to set our hope on Christ, and to look forward eagerly to his coming. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Two of the big issues uh, in the world of therapy and counseling today are helping people deal with their guilt and their shame. And the problem is, our society has removed most of the ways people deal with those things by downplaying or disregarding them. Many of the academic and intellectual elite will condescendingly say, That guilt and shame are just remnants of our unenlightened past. Yes, guilty conscience, shame-ridden, guilt-ridden, that's for back then. This is now. We're different. We're better. We're enlightened. We're different because we live in a day when we choose to say what's right and wrong. No one knows for certain what's right and wrong. No one knows for certain about God. We have to decide these things for ourselves. Everyone has to come up with their own standards and not be held to some other standard. We don't see the individual as unclean and defiled and evil. We think people are basically good. We don't have this sense of uncleanness that people used to have. And that's what our society is saying today, and as you can probably guess, I think all of that is very, very wrong. But even more, I think it's a very superficial response to what's really serious Issues and one person who has shown us that it's a superficial response is one of the great writers of the 20th century. He's brilliant and very weird. Franz Kafka, in his book The Trial, explains this. The Trial, by the way, is a fine book, it's been made into a movie twice. And uh, there's strong allusions to it in both the Blade Runner movies. And even though the trial movies have great Oscar award-winning actors, they're both really boring. And I'll tell you why. This is how the book goes. In the book, Joseph K. is having a normal life. And at the beginning of the book, he gets arrested. And he's taken into custody, but nobody tells him what he did wrong. And so he's constantly asking, "Why, why have I been arrested? What have I been accused of? And nobody tells him, and he goes from being held in custody to detainment to a hearing and back and forth and on and on, and nobody ever explains why. And everyone is very mean and very hard and very cruel and unsympathetic and overbearing and bureaucratic, and they say, "You have to talk to my supervisor, I have my orders. And so he goes through the book from episode to episode, from hearing to hearing, from custody to custody, and no one ever tells him what's wrong. And he starts to wonder about his life. Maybe it was for this. Or maybe I was arrested for that. I mean, I did that. Doesn't seem like that was quite bad enough, but maybe because it's for, for that. And he goes through the whole book, never knowing what he was accused of. And in the very end, like on the very last page, one of the people who has him in custody, one of his guards, stabs him to death and he dies. That's how the book ends. Wouldn't that be a great movie? (laughs) He's arrested. He never finds out what he's arrested for, and in the end, they kill him. And we, the readers, never find out what he was arrested for. It's actually a very powerful book. It was ranked one of the top 100 books of the 20th century. And here's why. Because Franz Kafka actually told us what the book was about. He died in 1924. And most of his works were published after his death against his wishes. He actually wanted them all burned. But along with his books, he kept journals which explained all his writing. And in these journals, Kafka wrote about this book, The Trial. And he says this book is about the state in which we find ourselves, which is quite sinful yet independent of guilt. Now, Franz Kafka was a German Jew, and he wrote this book in 1914 and 1915, right at the beginning of World War I. And he says that we live in a world where we don't believe in sin, and we don't believe in guilt, and we don't have those categories of guilt and sin and shame anymore, and yet we still know, we still feel deep down there's something wrong with us and Kafka is actually onto something he says in spite of the fact that we don't have these categories of guilt and sin and shame anymore we still have this deep profound sense that if we were examined we wouldn't pass if we were inspected we get rejected we have this profound sense we have to hide a deep sense that we aren't acceptable And in some way, we have to prove to ourselves and prove to others that we're worthy or that we're okay or that we're lovable or that we're valuable. And Kafka is saying it's because you don't believe in sin, you don't believe in guilt, even when you feel guilty. We come to the point where we don't believe in anything, and yet you know somehow that you're unclean. But now, there's nothing you can do about it. And it leaves you without hope. Somehow, despite rejecting the categories of guilt and sin and shame, you still know you're not up to specs. You're not up to speed. You can call it a phobia or a complex or a syndrome. You can uh, blame it on your parents and say they didn't love me enough. You can give it some psychological term, but there it is. We all have, deep down, a sense that we're unclean. And so we're covering and hiding and working like crazy to do something about it. We all have this sense, even us, even now, a hundred years after he wrote this, that we're unclean. And we, if we can't figure out how to address that sense of being unclean, of being inadequate, of being unacceptable, of being dirty, then we have no hope. And most people can't live without hope. Welcome to the world of the prophet Zechariah. Before we get too far into the text, let me back up and ask some important questions. Who is Zechariah, and what are these visions? Zechariah, as you've probably figured out, is a prophet. He's a contemporary of Haggai, and he's writing around the 6th century B.C., Uh, Two weeks ago, we were in Amos, uh, which occurs about 150 years before Zechariah, and last week, we're in Malachi, which occurs about 150 years after uh, Zechariah. So now we're in the middle, and what's going on? Well, it's been 15 years since we as a church were in Zechariah, so let me remind you, Uh, God's people have been in exile in Babylon, and now they're starting to return home to Jerusalem. And we can't forget, prophets are to real people, real life, real situations. And in Zechariah's case, the exiles have come back and theoretically they're supposed to rebuild the temple. Um, uh, But they didn't start doing that. They were just too overwhelmed. And the prophet uh, Haggai comes by. He rebukes them for building their own homes but neglecting God's home. And he encourages them as they get weary And they feel the strain of opposition. He assures them of the Lord's help. And along with rebuilding the temple, he has to reestablish worship. And that's actually a very difficult task because this generation that's rebuilding the temple and reestablishing worship has been off in exile. They've never seen temple worship. They're not totally sure what they're supposed to do, what it's supposed to look like. And besides, the temple is rubble. It's been knocked down. It has to be rebuilt. So things are very challenging uh, for God's people. And now the prophet Zechariah has been sent to them to encourage them, prepare them for restored fellowship with God. It's an enormously difficult book to read because the first half of the book is presented through a series of night visions. So it reads a lot like the book of Revelation or Ezekiel, parts of Daniel, It doesn't read at all like the other minor prophets, which are essentially historical. A prophets showed up, this is what God said, you should do it. Basically, that's how it goes. But not this guy. Here, Zechariah is receiving visions from God about the present and the future, and they're all mixed together. So in order to understand Zechariah, we have to realize that these visions are like snapshots of the future. But the snapshots are not in chronological order. They're not in any order. And so we only see what's happening in that snapshot and have no idea how it relates to all the other snapshots. But they all show that the Lord's focus is on care and concern for his people. And the night visions make the point that God knows what's going on. He sees everything that's going on. He cares for the people. He's going to act to bless his people. And so the man that's called upon to lead the exiles to restore this worship is Joshua the high priest. And so with that background, we're going to enter into one of these visions, the third and central vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord in the temple. And the first thing we see is the defense he mounts. The defense he mounts. And the he here is Jesus. It's not Joshua. Starts at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So we open with this dramatic scene. Joshua, the high priest, appears before the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament figure who, in the light of the New Testament, can only be understood as the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, worship at the altars, they're starting to reinstitute that. So the people are coming back to the city, and they're going to start rebuilding the temple, but it hasn't been fully restored yet. And so what you think starts as an act of worship actually becomes something of a tribunal, a courtroom scene. And at the right hand of the angel of the Lord, you have Satan, the chief accuser and opponent of God and his people. And he's there to accuse Joshua before this heavenly court and actually to press for Joshua's destruction. So the court is assembled, Joshua is the defendant, and he's being arraigned before the heavenly judge, and the satanic prosecutor stands to accuse him. Notice carefully, Satan doesn't have to invent any of the charges that he brings against Joshua. Verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now that's a shocking image especially for Zechariah, who is himself a priest. The high priest has to wear these sacred, pristine, pure, white linen vestments before he could appear in the presence of God in the temple. They took a whole week before he went in to make sure he was perfectly clean. But here he is, covered in filth. The word used here can actually mean excrement. He is unclean, literally ritually, in every sense of the world. And he appears before God, utterly unacceptable, contemptible, defiled. And it's a powerful representation, not of Joshua the high priest, but of Joshua the sinner. And all Satan has to do is point. The evidence is irrefutable and undeniable. Joshua is so dirty that he's stomach-turning, he's repulsive. There's no need for trumped-up charges. The facts are condemning enough. Now, the devil later will need false accusations for Jesus, but he doesn't need any for Joshua. He doesn't need any for you or for me. Like Joshua, apart from Christ, we're unacceptable, defiled, degraded in the filth of our own sin, and all Satan has to do is simply point to the facts, open and shut case. The defense can't counter the facts of our sin. And yet something extraordinary happens. Look at verse 2. It says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? One imagines Satan as the court of symbols before the judgment seat. And with a look of triumph, he denounces Joshua, recounting his sins. And now we see him sort of waiting for the sentence to fall. A self-assured smile playing across his diabolical face. And the sentence does fall, and the condemnation does come, but it does not fall on Joshua. The anathema of the angel of the Lord, the curse of divine wrath, this is stunning, falls not on the accused, but on the accuser. The Lord rebuke you, O O Satan. Those aren't empty words. Psalm 106, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. Mark 4, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased. There was great calm. The rebukes of Jesus, the angel of the Lord, bring the judgments they call for. And that self-assured smirk on Satan's face slides away as the angel of the Lord defends his people. And notice what the angel calls God here. He says, he is the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Joshua is the representative of the people of Jerusalem as the high priest. And the condemnation that Satan wants for Joshua is the condemnation he wants for all God's people. But the Lord has chosen them. They are his elect, precious to him. And all those God has chosen, he defends. Jesus prayed, concerning his disciples. John 17, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And having been given a people in the electing love of God, he intercedes on their behalf. He defends them against every charge. All the elect, all his people have in Christ a perfect defender. In fact, Joshua, far from being consigned to the fires of judgment, is instead, we're told, a brand plucked from the fire. A brand plucked from the fire. That's what you are if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. A brand plucked from the fire. Rescued from the inferno of God's wrath. Spared judgment by God's infinite mercy and grace. A brand plucked from the fire. Now, no doubt, the smile that once played on Satan's face is replaced with confusion. Because everyone in the heavenly courtroom knows Joshua is guilty. He's guilty. Satan knows it. Zechariah knows it. Even Joshua knows it. And yet he is not condemned. He is defended. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, the same can be said for you. We all sin. I sin. You sin. We all sin. Our sin is undeniable and condemning and filthy. Satan knows it. We know it. The Lord knows it. And still in his great love for you, Jesus defends you. That's stunning. He defends you. We're indefensible, and yet he defends us. There's so much more than that, but not only is there a defense that he mounts, but there's a cleansing he provides. Verses 4 and 5, the cleansing he provides. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said to him, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here the angel of the Lord tells his attendants to remove the filthy garments from Joshua the high priest. It says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so as the angelic attendants obey, then poor Zechariah is so overcome he forgets himself, and he blurts out in the middle of this scene, in the middle of this vision playing out before him. He says, don't forget the turban. Now, from Exodus, we know the high priest turban has an inscription on the front that says, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Zechariah inserts himself into the vision. says, don't forget the turban. He needs that statement. And instead of filth, Joshua is now, by the grace of God, holy to the Lord. Zechariah sees Joshua arrayed in pure vestments, his iniquity taken away by the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Do you understand what's happened? Satan is right about Joshua's unworthiness. He's right about my unworthiness. He's right about your unworthiness. But not only does Jesus defend us, He makes us clean in the sight of God. He robes us with righteousness and takes our filthy garments away. Joshua can take up the words of Isaiah 61. And so can we, if the Lord has acted to defend us and cleanse us by his grace. We can say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness, the headdress of the priest who has access to the throne of God, all of that has been given to us if we trust in Christ. The message of Zechariah 3 is, if you're one of the chosen, if you're a brand whom Christ has plucked from the fire, if you trust in Christ, you're counted righteous in the sight of God. Certainly, Satan will remind you of your sin. But the gospel of God's grace reminds us of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. You're now covered in clean vestments. And I think we would be wise to learn to be like Joshua here in the face of the devil's schemes. Notice Joshua never speaks. He doesn't open his mouth. The angel defends him. The angel cleanses him. Joshua makes no defense of his own. He trusts no work of his own to remedy the guilt and shame of his sin. He rests entirely on the work of Christ. In the Confession of Faith class this morning, we talked about receiving and resting on Christ alone. Joshua does that. We only need to remember that Jesus has acted for us, and we're robed in righteousness. You are clean. If you're a believer in Christ, you are clean. That's the gospel here in the Minor Prophets. That's Christmas hope in Zechariah. So we have the defense he mounts, the cleansing he provides, and then third, the challenge he issues, verses 6 and 7. The challenge he issues... It says, "And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, "If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here." Well, having had his sin forgiven, Joshua is now called to a life of holiness and obedience. He's to walk in my ways and keep my charge. And we have these two facets of the Christian life: forgiveness and obedience. And they shouldn't ever be separated. They can't be divorced. Those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. Those whom he gives the robes of Christ's righteousness have to bear Christ's likeness. There's no holiness without forgiveness. And the forgiven always grow in holiness. The great Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, you may have heard there's a uh, Bible reading plan um, that he authored. And he said this, I love this quote It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. It's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. God uses obedient servants. Second great privilege we see here is gospel access. He said, I will give you the right of access. Among those standing here, the angel of the Lord is speaking about the court of heaven, and this is a staggering promise. The right of access around my throne, in my presence, communing with me. There's a connection between growing obedience and deepening communion with God. Obedience and communion with God by his spirit, through his word, ordinarily, Go together if you want to feel the presence of God in your life. If you want to enjoy communion with Jesus uh, through the means of grace, the Word preached, promises prayed, the Gospel made visible in the sacraments, a growing awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Zechariah says, "Just obey." He makes it sound easy. We all know it's not easy, but he makes it sound easy. We have to work and obedience. We have to pursue holiness. We have to be serious about our faith. So we have the defense he mounts, the cleansing he provides, the challenge he issues, and then forth the deliverance he brings. There remains an unanswered question in our text, and that's Joshua is guilty as charged. God is holy, we're not, and yet Satan is condemned. Joshua is forgiven, commissioned for service. How does that work? How is it right for God to do anything other than condemn Joshua? Look at verses 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So we learn that Joshua and his friends are signs who point to another high priest yet to come. So the text uses three titles for this one who is yet to come. He is a servant of the Lord, he is the branch, and he is the stone. Servant of the Lord references passages like Isaiah 53, where the servant makes atonement for our sin by his wounds and afflictions. The branch is a metaphor for the future Davidic king. Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then you have this weird image of the stone set before Joshua. This context probably refers uh, to the building block and the reconstruction of the temple. Was it the cornerstone, the capstone, the foundation stone? But we read here this stone has seven eyes. In the book of Revelation, that image is symbolic of the perfect gaze of God's spirit on the Messiah. But more than the Messiah's identity, notice what The Messiah will do. Verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In a single day. That's the one who is the angel of the Lord who will be the suffering servant, the branch from David's line, the stone that is rejected of men, yet precious. He will atone for sin. That's a promise of the cross. Jesus suffered divine condemnation for us instead of us. Another Joshua will come. A greater Joshua, our true high priest, Jesus, who knew no sin, who has made sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the filthy garments taken from Joshua were given to another. Jesus put them on when Joshua took them off. Jesus takes our filthy garments, wears them in our place, And becomes the object of destruction that Satan rightly pleads for before the heavenly courts. The wrath of God is poured out upon our sin, but it does not fall on us. It falls on our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has died that Joshua might live. He has died that you might live. We face the same issues. We've all done shameful things and we struggle to understand why. We all have things in our past that haunt us with guilt we can't seem to get rid of. Perhaps that deep sense of regret leaves feelings uh, as though we are left forever dirty. So we ask ourselves in the privacy of our own hearts, is my past too filthy, too corrupt to move forward? Can I really be clean again? Is there still hope for me? Well, to you I would say the answer to guilt is always forgiveness. The answer to guilt is always forgiveness. A noted theologian and pastor once said, there's an important difference between guilt and guilt feelings. The distinction is that which is objective and that which is subjective. Guilt is objective. It's determined by a real analysis of what a person has done with respect to the law. If a person breaks the law, that person incurs guilt. And it's true in the ultimate sense regarding the law of God. When we break the law of God, we incur objective guilt. We can deny that the guilt is there. We can excuse it. We can try to deal with it. But the reality is we have the guilt. However, guilty feelings are subjective, and they may not correspond proportionally to our objective guilt. In fact, in most cases, they don't. And as painful as guilty feelings can be, we've all experienced guilty feelings, I don't think any of us have ever experienced feelings of guilt into direct uh, proportion to the actual guilt that we bear before God. I think it's actually a mercy of God that he protects us from having to feel the full weight of that guilt that we've actually incurred in his sight. And just as there are objective and subjective aspects of guilt, so there's objective and subjective aspects of forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness itself is objective. The only cure for real guilt is real forgiveness based on real repentance and real faith. However, we may have real and true forgiveness before God, and yet we don't feel forgiven. So when this theologian was in the pastorate, a woman came to him, uh, said she needed to come to him for counseling, and she did. She told him that she was guilty of this particular sin, and she was plagued by guilty feelings. She had a guilty conscience. And I'll let him tell the story. He begins, he says, So I had to read 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And she read it. She said, well, I've confessed this sin. I've asked God to forgive me of this sin a hundred times. I still feel guilty. What can I do? Well, the man said, well, let me ask you to do something else. I think you need to get on your knees and ask God to forgive you again. And when she heard that, she got really mad, very frustrated. She said, you're supposed to be a theologian. I expected something more profound than this. I already told you I confessed this sin to God and asked him to forgive me a hundred times. He said, well, I'm not asking you to confess that sin to God. I want you to confess a different sin. So what's that? He said I want you to confess your sin of arrogance. That really set her off. <laughs> arrogance? What do you mean? I'm the most humble person in the world. <laughs> I've been beating my breast. I've been on my face begging God to forgive me. So he said, "Does God say if you confess, he'll forgive?" Yes. Well, how many times do you have to confess your sin to God? If you confess it once, but you truly repent of it, what does God say that he'll do? She said he'll forgive it. And with that, I said to her, but that's not good enough for you. You go back to God a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a hundred times. Run that by me again, because I don't really trust your sincerity, God. I don't really believe, God, that you mean what you say when you promise to forgive me. Or maybe what you're thinking is the free remission of sins that God offers to the humbly repentant person is good enough for the really bad sinners and the gross sinners, but not for you. You're thinking it can't be this easy. Let other people bask in mercy and grace. I have more dignity than that. I want to do something to make up for it. But you can't make up for it. You're a debtor who can't pay your debts. All you can do is cry unto God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and take God at his word. You have to live not by your feelings, but by his truth. Your feelings are subjective. His word is objective. It's true. If God says, I forgive you, you are forgiven no matter how you feel. And to refuse that forgiveness is an act of arrogance. And in the end, it was the power of forgiveness that he shared with this young woman. I said, you've told me what you've done. And God's answer is not to paint a big red A on your chest and make you walk through the community in shame and embarrassment like the woman the Pharisees caught in adultery. The answer to guilt is always forgiveness. The only thing I know that can cure real guilt is real forgiveness. You've confessed your sin to me, that's fine. I can say God bless you. But what you need to do is get off by yourself, get down on your knees and tell God what you've done. Tell him you're sorry, ask him to forgive you and to make you clean. As you may have guessed by now, or if you read the footnote, that theologian and pastor was Dr. R.C. Sproul who passed away, as Dave said, Thursday. As I posted when I heard the news, thousands came to know the scriptures through his ministry. Thousands more came to know Reformed theology through his ministry. And thousands came to know the Savior through his ministry. He preached his last sermon on November 26th of this year. It was on Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. And it was entitled, So Great Salvation. I think, as R.C. preached, so great salvation. Joshua the high priest would have understood as he stood before the throne of grace, now clothed in clean garments. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, would understand as he is the one who left the throne of grace to give us clean garments and to take our dirty ones on himself. I pray that everyone here would understand as that same Jesus, now our forever high priest dressed in our dirty garments, takes you and me and puts his clean garments on us so that we can boldly approach that very same throne of grace. We're given his robes of righteousness and putting them on us, we're completely forgiven because the answer to guilt is always Forgiveness. Now, what does that mean as the devil comes as he will tonight, perhaps, tomorrow, maybe the day after, the day after that? Who knows when he comes? What does it mean for us as we face down his accusations day after day after day? Does it mean we can sing with confidence these words that you know you've sung many times? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You sing that in Satan's face and silence his accusations. Jesus died for my sins. Therefore, I am clean. Think about that. And then thank him for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin, our guilt, our shame, our unacceptability, our uncleanness, our dirt, and our filth. And then upward we look and see our Savior there. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess to you. We often live as a people without hope. We deserve destruction. You defend us. Christ intercedes for us and cleanses us and robes us with his righteousness and takes our filthy garments and wears them himself. He puts them on and he's condemned instead of us how we praise you for the gospel of God's grace. As Satan comes against us, as he no doubt will, reminding us of the filth of our guilt and sin and shame, would you help us cling to that truth that the tomb is empty, the work is done, and my Savior who bears the wounds of his finished work sits at the right hand of the throne of God above, and the devil has to take up his argument with him, and his wounds silence every accusation. The debt is paid. So be with us, we pray. Restore our hope. Thank you that Jesus comes to take away our sin, putting it on Himself, wearing our dirty garments. Thank you, we have a great high priest who makes us clean. Thank you that the King is coming. Grant that we may believe it and live like it and hope in it. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.